you're in Psalm 119, it's uh, now December 30th. We've made it through another Christmas season, I think. We've made it through another year. I think we should have t-shirts made that say, I made it through 2018. At least I should have one made for, for me, because <laughs> I know it's true for me. I made it through this year. <laughs> um, and it, around this time of year, I think we start thinking about uh, New Year's resolutions. How many of you do New Year's resolutions, either to exercise more or to eat less or maybe eat more? I don't know. Uh, you can do one of those too. That would be a probably easy one to keep up with. Um, but we think about New Year's resolutions around this time of year. We're thinking about change, thinking about things we want to alter or change about ourselves. And Oftentimes, I think these resolutions are funny because uh, they end up going by the wayside pretty quickly, uh, sometimes in the second week of January, or maybe you're really good and you make it to April um, or, or whatever, but sometimes these resolutions are more like just good intentions that just kind of fall out of practice. Um, and that's often because unexpected things happen, Right? Life is full of unexpected events and surprises and unplanned things coming into our lives. And uh, that's very true for me this year. Uh, 2018 has been a year of unplanned and unexpected things. I mean, we never know what the new year is going to hold. We never know what's going to happen in the next uh, 365 days, let alone the next day, the next hour. And we never sort of plan for uh, suffering to come into our lives or for adversity to come into our lives. We don't pencil in uh, getting bad diagnoses from the doctors. We just plan and we hope and we trust. And I think what's apparent to me is in reading Psalm 119 is the same thing was true for David. (laughs) David, was, uh, this is a huge understatement, but if you read the Psalms, and not all of them are written by David, but many of them are, if, if you read the Psalms, <laughs> it's very apparent that David was very familiar with suffering, is it right? He, he was familiar with dark days and struggles and grief and adversity. He was familiar with discouragement, with, I would say, depression. I would say with uh, doubting even the God that he was writing about, <laughs> He was, if you think about David's life, uh, in his early adult life, he was hunted or on the run for most of his early adult life. He was a fugitive. He was a, a king. He had been anointed king, but he was a fugitive. He was on the run from King Saul. And then when he actually got in, ascended to the throne, he, uh, his reign was filled with grief and war. He was known as the soldier king of Israel. His reign was never really filled with much peace. Internally, he was grieved by the things in the course and the events of his life. And externally in his kingdom, it was filled with war and with bloodshed. His entire kingship was characterized by struggle and by scandal. And I think um, what's interesting as we are reading, or as if you read the Psalms, they are songs. They are uh, songs that the church, the early church would sing in public worship. And so David is a songwriter. And like many songwriters that we are familiar with, uh, David often penned these words in the the midst of very, very intense hardship. There's many, many songs that are popular that we would know of where the writer may have written something happy or go lucky and the songs were actually written during very, very deep bouts of depression and struggle. And David's life kind of is characterized like that. He is writing these psalms in the midst of some very dark places. 
And that's, I think, because songwriting and singing in general is a very sort of therapeutic exercise. It's not just something we do because it's fun. It stirs our souls. It's one of the things that we know we're going to be doing in heaven is we're going to be singing. And so, therefore, I think it's a very uh, sort of sacred and divine thing that when we sing, we're not just singing for fun. We're singing because it stirs us. And that's what most of the Psalms are. They're spiritual songs that I think are composed and written for days of very deep struggle. And as I've said before, I think I'm convinced that the Psalms were written for David to convince himself of what he's writing. He's not like writing because he has mastered the faith or because he's some super spiritual Christian or something like that. He doesn't have a Superman logo on his Christian uniform. He's writing these psalms because he's convincing himself that what he's writing is true. Like, if you're journaling, most of the time you're bearing your soul on the pages. That's what David is doing. He's bearing his soul on the pages of Scripture, and he's convincing himself of the truth of God. And as you might know, Psalm 119 is a psalm that's filled with references to the Word of God, the truth of God. Actually, I think there's only a handful of verses that don't contain a synonym for the Word of God. And so here, I think he's convincing himself in this, what would be known as David's magnum opus, his masterpiece of the Psalms, he's convincing himself of not only the glory, but the majesty and sort of the prevalence God's word has in our lives. It's 176 verses, this Psalm. And I'm not going to read all of them. You don't have to get nervous. There's 22 stanzas, eight verses per stanza. And we don't see it because we don't know Hebrew. But if you're reading this in the Hebrew, you will know that each of the 22 stanzas begins with the next uh, sequential letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So this is what we would call an acrostic psalm. And it was much more lyrical in the Hebrew uh, than our English. But the sense of all of these verses and all of these ways that what David is trying to do is he's trying to remind himself, I think, that God's word is his only refuge and recourse throughout his life. But I want to draw your attention to the last stanza. So this is Psalm 119, 169 through 176. Because throughout all of these verses, it ends in a very anticlimactic way, I would say. It sort of is a surprising way. It's a jarring way that this psalm ends. Let me read it to you really quickly. Psalm 119, 169. David says, Let my cry come near before thee, O Lord. Give me understanding according to thy word. Let my supplication come before thee. Deliver me according to thy word. My lips shall utter praise when thou hast taught me thy statutes. My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. Let thine hand help me, for I have chosen thy precepts. I have longed for thy salvation, O Lord, and thy law is my delight. Let my soul live, and it shall praise thee, and let thy judgments help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments." I think in this, in these eight verses, what we're going to see really quickly is three, like a three-part song to the Lord Jesus, to God. And these three parts sort of make up what David is trying to express to God here. The first part, it comes in verses 169 and 170. We have David's plea. He says again, let my cry come near before thee, O Lord. 
Give me understanding according to thy word. Let my supplication come before thee. Deliver me according to thy word. You can hear him pleading with God. Hear me, God. I need you to hear me. This song, especially this stanza, is one of desperation. David is in desperation. He's praying that his cry, his supplication, would just be heard in Jesus' ears. And actually, that's what that word cry means. The cry literally can be translated like a ringing in the ears, a ringing sound, almost like a ringing in God's ears, you can think of it. He's saying, God, let my prayer, let my cry ring in your ears because I need you to hear me. And then that next word, supplication in verse 170, is interesting because it's, the word literally means a plea for grace. So he's pleading for grace as he's pleading for grace. <laughs> God, I need your grace in order for you to hear me so I can ask for grace. (laughs) I need you every step of the way. I am desperate. God, hear me. I think David, he's not confident in himself. You can hear that. You can hear David again. He's approaching God not as a superhero Christian. He's approaching God as one who is humble and contrite. And he knows, God, I need you to hear me. Because I am not good, I am not perfect. He's not confident in himself. He's confident in the God he's praying to. And I also like to notice too that David, he doesn't barge into God's presence. He doesn't come in with guns blazing and and yelling and saying, God, listen to me, listen to all the good things that I have done and reward me for it. He comes in and he comes in gripping uh, his only plea, which is the Lord's truth, the Lord's word. He pleads with God to hear him based on God's own word. (laughs) You notice what, that's what he says. Give me understanding according to thy word. And then he says in verse 70, deliver me according to thy word. So he's going to God and saying, hey, hey, God, according to your word, according to your promises, you listen to me. Listen to me, God, because of what you've promised. It's almost as if David is saying here, hey, God, remember what you said and all those promises? Okay, remember me based on that. Listen to me based on those truths. And I think... What we can see just in these first few verses is that uh, David's prayer is very opposite of, remember that prayer of the publican from Luke 18? Where in Luke 18 we have that parable of the Pharisee and the publican and they go to the temple to pray. And the publican, the tax collector, he starts praying and he starts saying, God, thank you that I have done all these things. I have done this, I have done that. And, the, and thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. David is praying way opposite of that. Because it's a prayer of grace, of prayer for grace. (laughs) His words weren't things he was boasting in. He wasn't boasting in, God, I've done this and this for the kingdom. I've done this and this for the glory of your name. His accomplishments were God's promises. (laughs) He was boasting in what God had done. He's saying, God, listen to me on that. These two verses, I think, echo each other uh, pretty well. He says at the beginning, let my cry come near before thee. God, hear me. And then he says, rescue me. Give me understanding. He says, God, deliver me. And he says it all because of what you have promised. Again, he goes back to those phrases. According to your word, according to the things that you have established, that you have promised to do, that's how you uh, can listen to me. And I think these verses give us the proper portrait of prayer. 
They give us the proper portrait of prayer because a prayer is a plea. He knows he needs help. And so he approaches this one person, his God, his helper, because he knows he's in desperation. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is not the assertion of power. It's actually the admittance of weakness. By going into prayer, you're not laying hold of something that you, can, that you have done. You're not even speaking words in themselves that are powerful. You are speaking to a God who is all-powerful and in who alone contains the power. <laughs> you're not asserting some sort of strength in yourself. You are admitting that you are weak, that you are helpless, that you are desperate, and that you need His grace for grace. All power in prayer is contained in the one that is prayed to. And it's an expression of weakness. And that should be an encouragement to us. Because God is not impressed or he, neither is he disappointed by the words we use or don't use when we pray. Therefore, we don't have to be scared to pray. It's not like we have to start praying in these and thous and thys and all those sorts of old English words. And that makes God hear us better. No, we can pray freely to a father who hears his children because he loves to hear the cries of the desperate. God loves to hear the cries of his children in desperation. So we don't have to memorize some incantation or invocation in order to uh, unlock God's power. We just have to speak and use our words. Maybe we don't even have to speak. Maybe we don't even have to close our eyes because we're driving. (laughs) Don't close your eyes while you pray when you're driving. Maybe we can just cry out. And just cry out to God that we don't know what's going on, but I'm just going to trust you. It's not a special prayer. David's prayer is not special. He's just saying, God, hear me. I need you. I think God is after in prayer, not us Um, saying something special. He's just after our realization that we can't get on without him. And he is the one that is uh, sustaining us. And so whether we stutter uh, or whether we stumble, or perhaps, yes, even when you wake up really early and you pray, perhaps even when you kind of doze off while you're praying, God hears you. He even hears us when we're dozing off. He hears us and our pleas, our cries for his help ring in God's ears as that word says. They ring in his ears. This is David's plea, but quickly, too, in verses 171 and 172, you have to notice David's praise. He's praising God. Look at what he says. My lips shall utter praise when thou hast taught me thy statutes. My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. David moves from crying and he moves on to singing. He's singing to God. That, that phrase there, my tongue shall speak, is literally, I shall sing. David's mouth is just pouring out praise for this God. This God that he knows will listen to him. And his mind is captured by this word of promise that he's praying to. Look at what he says in 172. My tongue shall sing of thy word because all of thy commandments are righteousness. But how can he uh, uh, sing and praise God for his commandments, for his statutes? So often we think of these commandments and statutes as things that inflict us. They restrict us. They tell us right from wrong. But he's delighting in the law, the word of God, because it tells him where righteousness comes from. 
That's what he says in look at 174. I have longed for thy salvation and thy law is my delight. He's delighting in God because he knows that even as he is in desperation, he knows that he has already been delivered because of the promise that God's word says. And therefore he can delight. You can only delight in God's law when you know that you have been delivered from God's law. And he knows that because of this promised one that he knows, this one that hasn't even come yet, that in uh, hundreds of years would come, this one that we are celebrating now, Jesus Christ, he knows that that is coming. He is delighting in the fact that he, his life has already been delivered because his God has promised it. Therefore, he's delighting in the statutes and the commandments of God. This is glorious to me because these verses clearly point and tell us and show us that all of these pages from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, they point to a person of the person who would live up and fulfill the commandments for us. His name is Jesus. (laughs) The one who stood in our place and kept these statutes and fulfilled these commandments. He is the one that David is praising God for and he's singing because he knows his Savior. And so uh, not only do we see the posture of prayer, but we see here in this praise of David, we see the person of prayer because we see that Jesus is the one who gives us the boldness to sing to his name. And the praise of these redeemed people, the praise of David comes from a remembrance of his own redemption. So as we come here to gather in church in the morning, we are not just singing words just to get our mouths moving. We're not just singing to stand so we don't fall asleep when we sit down. We are singing because we're remembering the place from which we have been redeemed. Redeemed people sing louder because they know that they have been saved from the depths of sin and depravity. And that's what David shows us here. And I think it also shows us what he's after because look at verse 71. He says, my lips shall utter utter praise when thou hast taught me thy statutes. He's literally saying, Lord, let me learn of you. Let me learn of you from your word. Let me learn of you from your commandments, from your statutes. Let me learn of your righteousness. And that's because the more we know of God, the more there is to praise God for. We will never run out of something to praise God for. Whether we are 5 or 50 or 90, we can praise God for new and glorious expressions and and knowledge of His grace in our lives. One writer, uh, he said this way, and I couldn't say it better than him, so I'm just going to read him. He says, The ever-increasing knowledge of God will excite ever-increasing praise. And as God is infinite and internal, it follows that the increase of knowledge and of happiness in those who are saved will be eternal. These things will go hand in hand forever. Increased knowledge of God, increased praise of God. The more we know of God, the more there is to praise Him for. Because the more we learn of God, the more we know that we aren't sufficient. (laughs) And the more that He is all-sufficient. The more that He is all-powerful and ever-sustaining our lives. Increase knowledge, increase praise. That's what David says, my lips shall utter praise. He considers it a privilege that he can praise the Lord. And that's what it is. Praise, this plea, this praise of of David here to his God is a privilege. He is freed to praise Jesus. We are freed to praise Jesus by Jesus himself. Jesus frees us to sing to him. And God hears our pleas and our praises because Jesus has taken all of our guilt away from us. 
All of our guilt has been swallowed by the Savior. So now we can sing to Him. We can sing all these praises because Christ has already pled in our stead and stood in our place. That's why we sing that song at the end of all of our service, just as I am, without one plea of our own, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou had bidst me come to thee, uh, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. We can sing that because Jesus has done that. We don't have a plea in ourselves, just like David. He doesn't come barging into God's throne room with his sense of goodness. He comes in desperate and he praises God because he knows that the promised one, the promised Messiah is his plea. And therefore, all the essence of our prayer, our pleading with God, our praising God, all the essence of it can be wrapped up in the name of Jesus Christ. David praises God because he learned where righteousness came from. That's what he is talking about there. Let me learn where righteousness comes from. It comes from the law and it comes from the one who fulfills the law. The son, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, quickly, lastly, we have David's plea with God. We have David's praise of God. And thirdly, in verses 173 through the end, 176, we have David's persistence with God. Look at the verses. Let thine hand help me, for I have chosen thy precepts. I have longed for thy salvation, O Lord, and thy law is my delight. Let my soul live, and it shall praise thee, and let thy judgments help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. (laughs) I love the ending of this psalm. Because it's so anticlimactic. <laughs> you would think that after 175 verses of David exalting and determining to live for God's word. To make God's word a part of his life. And to love God's word above everything else. You would think that after all of that you would conclude that. Yeah, David's a super spiritual Christian. That he doesn't uh, struggle. That he doesn't falter. <laughs> and we know otherwise. And the song says otherwise. <laughs> After 175 verses of praising the word of God, what does he say? I have gone astray. I forgot. I have wandered. I have gone astray. And that, that, that phrase, I have gone astray like a lost sheep, it, in, it implies not just he has in the past, but more like he has and he will again. It's a recurring theme. I have gone astray, God, and I probably will again. And that's why he follows it up. Seek thy servant. He's praying with God's persist in seeking him. He knows that his own tendency is to go away from what God says. And so he's saying, God, continue to seek me. Don't stop pursuing me. And that's why he's praying. That's why he's pleading with God. That's why he's praising God. He's saying, help me in verses 173 and 175. Surround me, defend me. Because he knows unless God helps him, he will be defeated. And then in verse 176, he says, seek me. And I love that, that phrase, seek thy servant, because it literally has this meaning to it. Not just seek and calling out with your voice. You know, we do. Uh, I, I can confess, when I was a kid, I used to do that. Uh, we, I lived in a house in South Carolina that has two floors. It was a split level. And my parents, you know, we would be, you know, I don't know, watching television or something, right? And my mom says, hey, Brad, call your brother and sister up for dinner. And what would I do? I would just yell out their names. Hey, come up for dinner. 
I don't think that's what she was wanting me to do. <laughs> she was wanting me to go downstairs and lovingly and quietly and gently say, brother and sister, come up for dinner. <laughs> come up for a great grand supper. That's what she was wanting me to do. In my laziness, I just sat on the couch and just yelled their names out and said, hey, come up for dinner. But what, what's so amazing is that phrase there literally means what my mom really wanted me to do. It means to seek with your hand, search for me by way of touch, not just your voice. He's not just praying that God would call out to him from afar. He's praying, God, come up to me and hold me with your hand. And I think because he uses that picture of the sheep there, I think of that picture from Luke 15 where the shepherd goes after its lost sheep and there's an old famous painting of that shepherd and he has the sheep over his shoulders. That's what David's praying for. God, I have wandered, I've gone astray. Don't just call me because I can't get back to you. You're going to have to come and get me. You're going to have to come and put me on your shoulders and get me back to where you want me to be. I have gone astray like a lost sheep, God, but seek me not just with your voice, but pick me up and bring me close. This is what he's pleading for because he knows his heart wanders. He knows he goes astray. He's pleading and praising God because he knows his God is the good shepherd that will chase him down. And this entire stanza is imploring God to just do that, to continue chasing him. God, don't stop pursuing me. God, don't stop helping me. Don't stop sustaining me. And I think what's, this verse is made all the more powerful when you look at the verses that come right before the stanza. Look at verse 167. Look at what he says. My soul hath kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies, for all my ways are before thee. I have kept, I have kept, and then yet at the end he says, I've gone astray. We, we see this sort of duality in David. He says in one hand that he's keeping God's promises. And then in the other hand, he's saying, I have gone astray. I've wandered. I've, I've forgotten them. And these contrasting confessions from keeping and yet uh, going astray. How can these confessions come from the same guy? Well, it's because they come from a guy who knows who he is. He's a lost sheep desperate for his shepherd. And so that's what he's praying for here. He wanted to love God above everything else, but sometimes he didn't want anything to do with God. You don't have to raise your hand, but I'll tell you, sometimes I don't want anything to do with God either. That's a safe thing to confess, by the way. You don't have to be scared of that. You don't have to be scared that God's going to let you go because you have a moment where you don't want the Father because we have to say the same thing, that as much as we might say we want God above everything else, our hearts are bent inwards towards ourselves. And we have to confess along with David, I have gone astray, God, you need to bring me back. We don't want God all the time. There are moments and hours and days where I don't want God and I go away from him. There's many times where I feel lost between what I know is true, what I know is right, and what I know I ought to do, and the things that I know I ought not to do. That should remind you, actually, I'm going to read those verses from Romans 7. Because you're in good company. If you've ever had those thoughts that I know what I should do, and I don't do that, and the things that I don't, I know I shouldn't do, those are the things that I keep on doing. That's what exactly what Paul says in Romans 7, in verses 15 through 19. He says, for that which I do, I allow not. 
For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. (laughs) If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. See, Paul is using a lot of prophetic and poetic language just to say that very thing. That he's vacillating between two different poles, the things that he knows he shouldn't do, and he keeps on doing them, and the things that he knows he should do, and those are the things that he's not doing. (laughs) There are times in even the Apostle Paul's life where he didn't want anything to do with God. There are times in the Apostle Paul's life where he knew what he was supposed to do and yet he went astray. This is why we have to preach the gospel. I don't know who it's attributed to. It's been attributed to many, many theologians from the past. But the phrase, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because we forget it every day, is a very, very true truth. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because we forget it every day. We don't remember it. We don't always have it in the forefront of our minds. And let me also tell you this. that If God only saved people who wanted him above everything else in this world, there would be a lot fewer people in heaven. He doesn't save people who want him above everything else. He saves people that put their trust in a God who wanted them. And a God who died in their stead. That's the good news. That even while we are running from God, God was running after us, as it says in Romans 5, that even while we were yet sinners, God died for us. Jesus Christ took our place on the cross, even while we were enemies of his cross. God doesn't wait around for us to be wanted by him. He goes out and he searches for us. Just like he searches for his King David, he searches for each and every one of you here this morning. He doesn't wait for you to say some special magical word and for him to come out and look for you and grab you and get a hold of you. He initiates the search. He's actually searching for you right now. Even if you are running from him, he has already found you. And that's the glorious thing. The glorious thing about the salvation that David is praising God for here is not based on a feeling. It's not based on David's feeling towards his redemption. You notice that? He knows what he should do. He's been told it through the word, through the word of truth, through the commandments. He knows what righteousness means and what it implies and what it entails. He is a Christian, and yet he knows that his Christianity isn't based on how he feels towards his Christianity in that moment. Because there's moments when I'm driving on I-75 where I don't feel like a Christian. I'm just being honest with you. And that's a good news. Because our salvation is not based on how we feel towards it. It's based on the fact that God has died for us. And that's something that doesn't fluctuate like our feelings do from one moment to the next. It's something that's based forever in the word and the truth and the blood of God himself. It's forever. And that's what the gospel is. And I I love this. I'm going to read another quick passage for you from my favorite author, an 18th century Scottish hymn writer. His name was Horatius Bonar. And he says this, the gospel is not a list of duties to be performed or feelings to be produced in us or frames which we are to pray ourselves into. 
in order to make God think well of us and in order to fit us for receiving his pardon. No, the gospel is the good news of the great work done upon the cross. And the knowledge of that finished work is immediate peace. It's not his feelings towards that work. It's not uh, even his knowledge of that work. It's the fact that he trusts in the forever and the eternal abiding of that work. That's where his peace came from. And he knew that. David knew that. He's praying with God to persist in pursuing him. And that's the good news of our salvation. The good news of our salvation, yours and mine, is that it's established forever in God the Father dying for us. God the Father, the Creator, as we've been celebrating during this Christmas season, coming down in our stead and living for us and dying for us. We may not always love God perfectly, but we can know that God perfectly loves us. Every single day, we may not be able to say that we love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, and strength and mind, but we can know and believe and trust that Jesus absolutely loves us. Absolutely loves us. And he loves us enough to die our death. And that's something for me that's eternally encouraging. One of my favorite verses is 2 Timothy chapter 2. In verse 13, because it gives us this promise. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, because he cannot deny himself. Literally, if we are faithless, he is faithful. Even when we are doubting and struggling and, and, and maybe even losing our faith, God is faithful for us. Because he cannot deny himself, he cannot lie. And that's what the Christian life is. The Christian life is not about you white-knuckling God by your faith. It's about realizing that God is holding you with his cross. That's what your life is about. And that's what is so glorious about this new year. I don't know what this new year holds. I don't know what is going to happen in this new year, in the next 365 days, in the next 12 months, the next week. But I do know that God is holding on to me. I have to tell you, 2018 has been a very difficult year. In June, my mom um, had a, a very severe mental health crisis. And she relapsed back in December. I was actually just with her last week. Um, on Christmas Day, I went up and saw her because she was back in the hospital. She's battling something inside her that she can't control. She's in this fog of depression and hopelessness. My mom, who was always the steady person. <laughs> the thing I remember about my, my mom is she, was, uh, she w- would wake up every single morning and read her Bible. It was like a conviction to me because I was so busy and yet she was the one who was always there reading her Bible and journaling in her Bible. And and now she uh, can't think clearly. I pray that God would do something miraculous in her. But I think about that because I didn't think that that was going to happen last January. I didn't think that my dog would pass away in Thanksgiving. 
We don't have a plan for all of these things that come up in our life. As I said at the beginning, that we don't have a plan for the unexpected and the unplanned. And those unexpected and unplanned things are oftentimes painful. We don't know the future. But guess what we do know because we know the word. We know the one who is ordaining and controlling and and figuring out the future for us. (laughs) And his name is God. We know him. We know the one who holds the future. So even if we struggle, even if we are in a desperate place, we can praise and plead because God is going to persist in his pursuit of us. God is holding on to you forever. Right now, December 30th, 2019, he's still going to be holding on to you. We can praise God for that. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.